Lonely song, the songs for you. Sometimes you have to stop and ask yourself, why would anyone attempt to do this work? Have you ever really just stopped and asked yourself that? Well, why would anyone try to do this? It is so difficult. It's so hard. Nothing should be this hard. Think about it. Nothing should be this hard. You know, if you learn to play the violin, it's not this hard. If you learn to play the piano, it's not this hard. Take the most difficult instrument, they say, maybe is the sitar or classic guitar. Anyway, it's some kind of a stringed instrument is my take on it. It's really difficult. It takes a lifetime to master it, if you ever master it at all. Why would anyone attempt to do this work, which is much more difficult than that? And as you think about it, you'll have to, if you look at yourself, you have to realize there were two chief culprits that got you involved in this. Ignorance and arrogance. Really, think about it. Ignorance and arrogance. The first, ignorance, produces the second, arrogance. Because the only people who can be arrogant, the only people who can be proud, are the people who are ignorant. Ignorant of what? Ignorant of who they are, what they are. And when you're ignorant of what you are, then you can be proud. But as soon as you start to find out what you're really like, pride gets deflated. Maybe not in a hurry, but little by little, it starts to be worn away. Both of these, ignorance and arrogance, are illustrated in a story that I'd like to read to you. It's the story of Balaam's donkey, and it's found in Numbers chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. You know the story. Most people know the story, but I like telling it because it's a great story. It's one of my favorite stories. It starts off that Balaam had some men sent to him by Balak, who was a king, and he wanted Balaam, who was known to be a prophet, he wanted him to come and curse the Israelites because the Israelites had come out of Egypt and they were just swarming all over the land like locusts, according to Balak. And he was like, oh, get them out of here. They're going to ruin everything. They're going to take this. They're going to do that and just get them out of here. So Balak, he sent some of his Moabite officials to see Balaam. And he told him, look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Come and curse these people for me. Then perhaps I'll be able to stand up to them and drive them from the land. But God told Balaam, don't go with them. You are not to curse these people, for they have been blessed. So the next morning, Balaam got up and he told Balak's officials, Go on home, the Lord will not let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to King Balak and reported, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak tried again. This time he sent a larger number of even more distinguished officials than those he had sent the first time. They went to Balaam and delivered this message to him. This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Please don't let anything stop you from coming to help me. I will pay you very well and do whatever you tell me. Just come and curse these people for me. Now you're starting to get the arrogance part here. It's not that Balak is so arrogant. It's that Balaam is. And Balak knows it. And so when he sends the next set of officials, he sends a larger number of even more distinguished officials. Nothing gets us more than flattery. Flattery, you know, you, you can do this work. You can observe yourself. You really want to develop. Flattery. We flatter ourselves. Everything in life flatters us. Why? Mainly because we use it to flatter ourselves with. And life knows it. People know it. Balak knew it about Balaam. And people know it about you. They know that you love to be flattered. They know that the way around you is flattery. That's what they know. 
And it's true. When you think about it, of course, you're not going to think about it too hard, but when you think about it, that's true. It's like, oh, no, that really is the truth. I love to be flattered. You don't call it really being flattered. You just call it being appreciated. <laughs> that's, what you, that's what you call it. You say, well, when someone appreciates me, of course I feel good about that. It's nice when people are grateful and, and appreciative. So anyway, Balaam responds to Balak's messengers. Even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I'd be powerless to do anything against the will of the Lord my God. But stay here one more night, and I'll see if the Lord has anything else to say to me. Here is the real problem. We never take a stand on anything, do we? Well, just stay here one more night. Since you're going to give me a palace full of gold and silver, maybe, maybe God will change his mind. I could give him a tenth. You know, I'll give him 10% of that. I'm pretty sure he'd change his mind for a chunk of gold and silver like that, wouldn't he? That night, God came to Balaam and told him, Since these men have come for you, get up and go with them, but do only what I tell you to do. So the next morning, Balaam got up, saddled his donkey, and this is where we get Balaam's donkey, and started off with the Moabite officials. But God was angry that Balaam was going, so he sent the angel of the Lord to stand in the road to block his way. This has always got me. All the years I've read this, so God says, go ahead and go with him, but do only what I tell you to do. But then he's angry because he got up and went. Why is that? The Christians like to say that's the permissive will of God. It's not the real will of God. It's the permissive will of God. And I always thought that was a cheap shot. That was just a sneaky way of getting around something. But then I was reading something by C.S. Lewis, and he was talking about free will. God gave you free will. If your mother tells you, and this is what Lewis said, if your mother tells you, keep your room clean, and then you don't keep your room clean, and she comes up and she finds out you didn't keep your room clean. Was it her will that you didn't keep your room clean? No, it was her will that you did keep your room clean because she told you to keep your room clean, but you didn't keep your room clean. So what does she do about that? That's her permissive will. Does she kill you? No. Does she clean your room? Hopefully not, because if she does, then she's training you that you don't ever need to keep your room clean. What does she do? Well, she tells you she's not happy that you didn't keep your room clean, and she'd like you to keep your room clean. So her will is for you to keep your room clean. But her will is also for you to have free will and to keep your room clean on your own because you have learned that this is something that you need to do, that this is something that will build your character, that this is something that will benefit you later in life and right now too. So her permissive will is to let you have free will, to not force you to keep your room clean, but to try and train you to keep your room clean. So in that sense, it starts to make a little bit of sense to me. Since these men have come for you, get up and go with them, but do only what I tell you to do. He's pretty sure that Balaam's going to go because Balaam wants that money. He wants the gold and silver. He's got this arrogance going on. He's got this pride thing going on. So he wants all of this stuff. So he sent the angel of the Lord to stand in the road to block his way. As Balaam and two servants were riding along, Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. I've heard a lot of things. I'm not going to try and explain this as anything other than a story. But I do like to think about things. Have you ever noticed how a dog will stand and look at nothing or a cat will stand and look at nothing? Now, we know that we're only seeing 20% of the spectrums available from the sun, 20% of the energy spectrum. So we're seeing one octave out of possibly five or more octaves. We're able to see one octave. We're able to see 
when we take white light and refract it, we're able to see from red to violet. Ultraviolet we don't see, and infrared we don't see. Both sides of that we're not seeing. So we're missing at least 80% of what's there. So if you can't see 80% of what's in this room, then what is the dog or the cat looking at? That's just a thought. And I've heard people really extrapolate this and carry it out to, oh, cats see dead people, you know, and whatever. People just love to make things up. And sometimes the way you find something out is you make up theories. And then you test those theories and you find, sure enough, one of those, that's what science is. Science is a bunch of people sitting around making up theories on why something could possibly be this way. And then they test those theories and they see how many of the things that they know can be answered by this theory. And then if a lot of things they know can be answered by this theory, then the theory is more valid than if no things they know can be answered by the theory. And it remains a theory, even though it's taught as the way it is. The Big Bang Theory is a theory. That's all it is. It's a theory. It's not a fact, but it's taught as a fact. You don't think, well, they're just saying this could have happened. No, they don't do that. They say, when the Big Bang occurred, this is what happened. They don't say, this is our theory. This is what we're trying to figure out. We really don't know, but we're trying to figure this out. Probably because we're going back to the arrogance thing again. And the arrogance came directly out of their ignorance. Their ignorance, they don't know how it worked. Because they're ignorant of their arrogance, because they're ignorant of the fact of how it worked, and because they're ignorant of their own arrogance, they can have arrogance, just like we do. At any rate, the donkey saw the angel standing there in the road with the drawn sword in his hand. So the donkey bolted off the road into a field, but Balaam beat it and turned it back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood at a place where the road narrowed between two vineyard walls. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it tried to squeeze by and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So Balaam beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved farther down the road and stood in a place too narrow for the donkey to get by at all. This time, when the donkey saw the angel, it lay down under Balaam. In a fit of rage, Balaam beat the animal again with his staff. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really disliking Balaam now. I like the donkey, but I don't like Balaam. I don't like people who beat animals. I don't like people who mistreat other people. I don't like people who mistreat animals even more, unless it's a child. A person, you know, you can, like, get away or call for help. But if you're an animal, you know, it's like you're stuck. This guy's got dominion over you. He's got authority over you. He can kill you if he wants to. And people do all the time. I don't like that. I think that people like that are lacking a part, a spiritual part. They're lacking some kind of a connection that would enable them to see their unity with the being that they are mistreating. So anyway, this is the story of Balaam, and I get a little upset with Balaam, even though whether Balaam was a real guy or not, I don't know. Whether this actually happened or not, I don't know. But it's a great story because it illustrates so much about human nature, so much about us. Although you would never beat a donkey. Then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. Now, this is where it really gets good. Now, this is like Aesop's fables. Now, the Lord gives the donkey the ability to speak. What have I done to you that deserves your beating me three times? It asked Balaam. The thing that gets me is the donkey's smarter than Balaam. Balaam's in this fit of rage. He's blind. He's in his blind rage. He can't see what's in front of him. He can't see what's happening. And he's so furious that he's not getting his way that he's beating a dead horse, as it were. And here's the beautiful part. Balaam is so upset, he answers honestly. 
He says, you've made me look like a fool. Balaam shouted. If I had a sword with me, I would kill you. But I'm the same donkey you have ridden all your life, the donkey answered. Have I ever done anything like this before? No, Balaam admitted. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam bowed his head and fell face down on the ground before him. Why did you beat your donkey those three times, the angel of the Lord demanded. Look, I've come to block your way because you are stubbornly resisting me. Three times the donkey saw me and shied away. Otherwise, I would certainly have killed you by now and spared the donkey. You can see why this is one of my, I hope you can see why this is one of my favorite stories. Somebody gets to stand up for a donkey. That's always a good thing. And somebody gets to call Balaam the ass that he actually is. That's a pretty good thing, too. We start out in this work just like Balaam. We're ignorant and we're arrogant. We're going after something that we want, and we do it blindly. And after a while, these ideas become the angels that open our eyes. And when our eyes are opened, sadly, one of the first things we have to see is what fools we've been, what really is driving us. Self-justifying and buffers keep us from seeing contradictions in ourselves. Once the angel opens our eyes, the real trouble begins. Balaam was in charge of everything. He's beating the donkey. He's carrying on like he knew what was going on. But once his eyes were opened, the real trouble began. Morris Nichols said, To bear the burden of oneself is to be aware of these contradictions almost continually. When the angel opens our eyes, when I say the angel, of course I mean an angel is a messenger. That's what an angel represents. A messenger from God or a messenger from on high or a messenger from the absolute. Or a messenger from higher centers, if you will. Whatever you like, whatever you like to call it, that's fine with me. I don't have a problem calling it God because I don't mean what you mean when I say God. Nobody means what anybody else means when they say God. So that's a safe statement. And it's not something like, well, you don't know what God is and I do. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is I don't mean what you mean when you say God. I don't know what you mean. But when I say God, I don't mean anything particular. I mean an idea, an idea that I cannot fathom, that I cannot fully grasp, that I don't know that I'll ever fully grasp or be able to fully grasp, an idea that I can experience at some level, but not that I can put into words or explain at any level. So when the angel, which is the messenger from on high or from the absolute or from higher centers, opens our eyes, ignorance is the first thing to go. You see something, and the first thing that goes when you see that something is your ignorance. You can't go back. Once you've begun to see what you're like, it's very difficult to go back. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult to go back. The ignorance goes not all at once, but slowly. Arrogance follows the same way, not all at once, but slowly. It's amazing how arrogant we can still be after all these years in the work. It astounds me when I look at us and how we treat one another, and how we despise one another, and the way we talk about one another, it's astounding. I'm flabbergasted that we could still be so arrogant. But there's a reason for that, too. Awakening, having our eyes opened, is painful. Thankfully, it takes a long time. We begin our journey by beginning to understand we must bear the unpleasant manifestations of others, like the donkey had to bear the unpleasant manifestations of Balaam who was ignorant, and into his ignorance was abusive and stubborn and arrogant. And it doesn't take a lot to take a walk through life and find some people like that. It doesn't take a lot to walk in front of a mirror and find somebody like that. 
We can hold off bearing the burden of ourselves with self-justifying. We don't have to look in the mirror and see an arrogant, ignorant, stubborn person. We can look in the mirror and through self-justifying, make it all go away. If we justify everything we do, we generate a state of non-work in ourselves. So how is it that people can be in this work for so long and really get nowhere? Well, because if you're justifying yourself, you're generating a state of non-work in yourself. You can't work and justify yourself. It's impossible. can't be done. With self-justifying and the silent, nearly instant action of buffers, the only work that ever occurs is in our imagination. Imagination is probably the biggest problem that we have when it comes to psychological, spiritual development. The biggest problem that we have To imagine that we're working is self-deception. When we try to test our work, our consciousness moves away from imagination, self-justifying, and the action of buffers, which belong to the outer man. All these things belong to the false personality. Imagination, self-justifying, the action of buffers, all are part and parcel of the false personality. We can only test our work by observing it in the light of what esotericism teaches. It's never going to work to test your work by what other people in the group think about you. If that's how you test your work, you're not testing your work because they don't know anything about you. They can't even see you. You're invisible to them. So they can't possibly help you. Not in that way. We let the ideas judge our work on ourselves. So the work that you're doing on yourself can only be judged by one thing, really, the ideas of the work. As it is, we let the ideas judge others. What do we do with these ideas? Do we let the ideas judge us and our work? No, we use the ideas to point out what he's doing wrong, what she's doing wrong, how she's not doing nearly enough, and what's wrong with her. Is she never going to get off it? Is she never going to stop doing that? That's what we do with the ideas, which is not the same thing as letting the ideas judge our work. Sooner or later, you've got to ask yourself, and hopefully you're asking yourself this once a day, are we really struggling with imagination? Am I really struggling with imagination? This helps separate the fine from the coarse. It sets up an inner division. It creates friction, which creates the heat that's needed to fuse the many into a unity. You remember, Gurdjieff talked about a retort. Do you know what a retort is? In a laboratory, a retort is a little pot kind of thing, and you put it over a Bunsen burner or some kind of heat, and you put things in there, and then you heat them up. Well, Gurdjieff said that we are like this retort, this jar, we'll say, or retort. And inside are all these powders. But every time anything happens in life, all these powders shift. And so these powders are like our many different eyes. And any time anything hits us in life, we don't know what will respond because all these powders shift. We can't say that we'll respond in this way or we'll react in that way because we don't know what that effect will have on the inside of us, all these different eyes. So he says that when we put heat under that, when there's enough heat, it begins to melt those powders and fuse them together, and then we could become one. So the many becomes a unity. The heat needed to fuse the many into a unity. This heat must be kept going. It can't be allowed to stop for very long. And so in this work, we try to keep the heat going. When I say we try to keep the heat going, I mean in the work, we try to keep the heat going. In your life, you try to put the fire out. In your life, what you aim at doing in life is eliminating friction, eliminating opposition, eliminating contradiction. You don't want to contradict yourself. You don't want other people to contradict you. And you don't want friction in yourself and you don't want friction from other people. There are unpleasant sensations 
and we develop aversions to them, and automatically, mechanically, without thinking about it, we push them away. We avoid those things. But here, in this work, and this is why the work isn't very popular, we don't do that. Here, we try to create friction. Here, we try to bring up the contradictions. Here, we try to expose our contradictions and the contradictions of others. But we'll talk about that a little bit later, because some people go really crazy with that, exposing the contradictions of others, I mean. So this heat has to be kept going. If it's allowed to stop for long, it grows cold. But the events of life swamp us, and then the consciousness of the work is lost, and we fall asleep, sweet sleep, beautiful, wonderful sleep. Sleep gives us the ability to avoid the contradictions. But seeing the contradictions in yourself keeps the fire going and it keeps you awake. But being awake can be very unpleasant, especially in the beginning, because what you have to be awake to is all of your contradictions. And when you're not separated from those contradictions, when you are those contradictions, it's almost unbearable. One side of you pretends you had good reasons for what you did. Another side of you knows you were wrong. This is friction. One side of you clearly knows, I had good reasons for that. That's the self-justifying side. The other side of you, the side of you that's connected to this work, the side of you that is connected to the angels that come from this work, the ideas that come from this work, that side of you says, no, you're wrong. And there, the friction is set up and the heat starts. But we're as sneaky as Balaam. We openly say we're wrong, but we don't mean it. It's an insincere confession that usually reinforces the false personality and its pictures of itself. How proud are you when you admit you're wrong? There you go. It may be hard to admit you're wrong, but you're always proud of yourself after you've done it. That's because it's an insincere action. And when we're being insincere, it's reinforcing false personality and our pictures of ourselves as really good people. I'm really trying. I'm really working hard. It's so much better to get caught in the act and then notice how you twist and turn. If you get caught and you're wrong, it's so much better. If you admit that you're wrong, that's going to the wrong place. If you're not caught, but you come up with it yourself and you admit you're wrong, that's going to the wrong place. Nine out of 10 times, 99 out of 100 times, it's going to the wrong place. Because the false personality is like the grave. It never has enough. But if you're caught and then you begin to notice how you twist and turn and try and get out of it, that's more useful. Being accused of what you haven't done is better still. When you're accused of what you haven't done, it produces a powerful friction if it's properly used. The sad part is it's rarely ever properly used. Why is that? Because we feel indignant. We feel like a martyr. We feel like a victim. We get angry. We self-justify. None of these things produces much in the work. In fact, it produces nothing in the work. When you are accused of something that you haven't done, that's an opportunity to work. When you get caught in the act, that's an opportunity to work. Not to justify yourself, not to wiggle out of it, but to see how you try to wiggle out of it, to see how you try and justify yourself, to see how angry you get when you're accused of something you didn't do. That's where the friction can be produced, and that's where the heat can be produced. Usually, it only produces self-pity, indignation, and recrimination. You know what recrimination is. Recrimination is that lovely habit we have Someone says, well, you blah, 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 blah. And we say, well, you do the same thing. That's recrimination. Recrimination is when someone points something out about you, you point that out or something else about them. That's recrimination. And the obvious object of that is not to work on yourself. The obvious object of that is to justify yourself, avoid working on yourself, 
avoid the friction, avoid the heat, avoid the unification of your being. And what is doing that? It's certainly not the part of you that wants to work. It's the larger part of you that wants to sleep. We love negative emotions, and we like to pretend they're painful. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, you're an idiot. You have brought all this on yourself. He said, I am painfully aware of that every day. And that's just it. We love negative emotions, and we like to pretend they're painful. We keep doing the things that are painful, and we keep pretending that we don't love it. We keep pretending this is awful. There's nothing I can do about this. I've just gotten myself into this. I can't get myself out. I don't want to hurt somebody else's feelings. I don't want to make somebody else look bad. Blah, blah, blah. And it never has anything to do with that at all. That's all a lie. It's only about one thing. Us enjoying negative emotions, pretending that they're painful. Negative emotions can be painful. But the quality of the pain that this heat that we're talking about gives us is very different than the quality of pain of negative emotions. Yes, negative emotions can be very painful. It's true. They can. And they should be. Because it's a warning sign. When you are in enough pain from negative emotions, it's a warning sign that it's going to destroy you if you don't get away from it, if you don't give up the negative emotions. It's shocking how few opportunities we seize to observe our own contradictions. Paul wrote, If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. That's in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to read some of Galatians, maybe four or five verses of that. It's really what we're talking about. Paul talks about it in a different way, obviously, because he's got a different way of looking at things. I think I'll read it in the New American Standard because that's closer. We want a good word for word because this gets really funky if you don't have a good word for word. Much of esoteric writings are mistranslated, translated poorly or mistranslated. Because the people who translated it were Greek scholars or Hebrew scholars or whatever scholars, and they weren't esoteric scholars. They were scholars of the language, but they didn't get the meaning that was meant, like, for example, in the story of Balaam's donkey. What are the chances of the donkey speaking? If you want to believe that, you can. That's okay with me. It could happen. It's possible, I guess. But the real message is what it all means internally for you. The real message is the esoteric message. The real meaning is the esoteric meaning. Esoteric writings are not history books. They are much more important than that, much more valuable than that. But we don't take them that way. We take them as history books, which is a sad loss for us. So he says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. It's like I've told you, I don't know, a lot of times about truth being a two-edged sword. When you're reproving someone else, you need to observe yourself and not just see something wrong in the other person. In other words, if you're using the sword of truth on someone, then it better be cutting you too. Because if it's not, you're misusing the sword. It needs to cut you too. You need to see this in yourself as well, not just in the other person. If you haven't done that, you're missing the mark. If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, you who psychologically understand this, you who are trying to develop yourself, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So look to yourself and find how this is operating in you. It's not just about this other person. You need to figure out how this is operating in you, how it is that you saw it, how it is that you recognize it, how it is that you know it. 
You have to admit, pointing out faults in others is a delightful, easy occupation. What can be more fun than people watching at the mall? And what people watching at the mall really means is pointing out the faults of others. And people can have a great afternoon doing that. A couple ladies sit together and point out this one and that one. They get really good at it. You remember when we were in Central America, people would, they didn't point with their fingers. They would point with their lips. Just go and point with their lips. And very subtle because it was rude to point like that. We were a little more rude here, but they weren't so rude. So they would just do it subtly. I think maybe that comes from a society where they have been conquered and subjugated by arrogant people, and you have to hide those things. So they develop sign language. They develop different ways of saying things and doing things so that they can survive the subjugation, the oppression of the conqueror. But come on, you do have to admit, it's quite an easy occupation pointing out the faults of others. And it's common too. It's something everybody does. It's really, everybody does it. So what can be wrong with that if everybody does it? You see, we love the safety in numbers thing. Oh, well, everybody's doing it. It can't be that bad. And you remember what your mother used to say to you when you said, well, Bo, I want to go here. And they said, no, you can't go. But Johnny's parents are letting him go. Everybody else is doing it. Well, if everybody else was jumping off a bridge, would you do that too? You remember that one? What did they go to mother's school at night when we were sleeping? They went to mother's school and they learned all these things to say because they all say, no matter where I go, everybody has the same thing. It's common. Yeah, it's common. It's so easy because it's mechanical. It's so common because it's mechanical. It's what everybody does because everybody's mechanical. It's what everybody does because everybody we know is sleeping people. There are two kinds of people on earth, dead people and sleeping people. But what about the people who are awake? What about them? Where are they? There are dead people and sleeping people. Sleeping people, well, what if they're trying to awaken? Then they're sleeping people or else they wouldn't be trying to awaken, would they? So there are two kinds of people, dead people and sleeping people. If you have made it to the sleeping class, congratulations. Morris Nichols said members of groups in the work must not do this unless asked to by their victim. I love the way he put that, by their victim. In other words, we shouldn't be reproving someone or pointing out someone else's faults in a group unless you've been asked to by your victim. And your victim, obviously, is going to be the person who asked you. And when you do, make sure that it cuts you. When we point out faults in others, we're actually expecting them to change. You know, that's another thing. We get indignant. When we point out faults in others, we get angry at them because they're not changing. This is the most ridiculous thing we can do. As if they could change any more than we can. How often we forget. You can't do, but you think you can. When you're telling someone else what's wrong with them, you want them to change. And the reason you want them to change is because you've taken yourself as one, because you are absolutely asleep, and you imagine that you can change anything you want, anytime you want. Why else would you be so indignant over someone else having a fault? Unless you were so arrogant that you thought you had none. Or you thought somehow you were working on yours and that made it okay. That's a contradiction. What we're called by esoteric ideas to do is bear the unpleasant manifestations of others. He puts it this way in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. What is more of a burden than other people's unpleasant manifestations? It's a burden. And bearing the burden of other people is a difficult thing. It's what makes groups so unpleasant. It's what makes them so difficult. It's what makes you leave 15 minutes after you eat. You don't want to deal with the unpleasant manifestations of others. It's what makes you not want to socialize. You don't want to bear the unpleasant manifestations of others. It's what makes you not care about them. Don't want to bear their unpleasant manifestations. This is not rocket science. 
but you have to be sincere to see the contradiction in yourself. And if you're sincere and you see the contradiction in yourself, then you have to bear your own unpleasant manifestations. Then you have to bear the burden of yourself. Well, trust me when I say, look, I've been bearing the burden of you for years. It's not a good idea for you to have to bear the burden of yourself. I mean, think about it. You have been bearing the burden of me for years. It must not be a very cheery thought for you to think, oh, he's going to have to bear the burden of himself. Well, maybe for some of you it is. Some of you who are a bit more vengeful than others. But the point is, we do have to bear the burden of one another or bear one another's burdens, as it were, in order to fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what is that law? That law can be found pretty quickly. Matthew six fourteen. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. It's canceling debts. The law of Christ is cancel. Cancel it. Make it of no account. Make it of no account. Don't keep accounts. Cancel it. Rub it out. But I can't do that. You'll have to learn. If you're going to do this work, if you're going to develop, you're going to have to fulfill the law of Christ. And that is forgiveness, canceling debts. Bearing the burden of another's failings will produce some heat. I can assure you of that. It will produce friction. And that friction will produce heat. But more is needed. It's not enough just to bear the burden of other people's faults, failings, unpleasant manifestations. We've got to bear the burden of our own failings. And here's the hard part and not be negative. You've got to learn to bear the burdens of your own nasty, contradictory self and not be negative about it. We're complacent about ourselves because we don't see our contradictions. We can sleep because we don't see our contradictions. It's useless to have a good opinion of yourself. It's one of the things that this work teaches, and it doesn't teach it nearly enough or hard enough, as far as I can tell, because it's something that we can't get very easily. It's useless to have a good opinion of yourself. And yet, you've got a great opinion of yourself. Having a good opinion of yourself neuters these ideas and makes work on ourselves of no account. And there we go. Wow, Paul had this one too. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's verse 3 of Galatians 6. So far, Paul's hitting it pretty good here. It's actually as if Paul knew something about this work. Which is why when people say to me, what is this work that you talk about? I don't tell them it's the fourth way. It's not the fourth way. The fourth way is some sliver of it, but this existed long before Gurdjieff was a gleam in his father's eye, long before Ospensky was born, long before the last century, the century before that, or the century before that, or the century before that, or the millennium before that. This work is old. These teachings are old. Esoteric teachings are ancient. So for Paul to plug into it was no big deal. That was only a couple thousand years ago. It was old then. We're told to test the truth of these ideas on ourselves. Are we genuinely working? And let's go to verse 4. But each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Each one will have to bear the burden of himself. I just find this fascinating that it's so in line with what we are trying to do. No wonder Gurdjieff called it esoteric Christianity. We'll have to bear the burden of our own failings, the burden of ourselves instead of finding fault with others. We'll find it less difficult to bear the burden of other people's unpleasant manifestations once we've begun to see our own. It is amazing how it takes the edge off, isn't it? When you start to see what a jerk you really are, it's amazing how easy it is to give somebody else a pass on being a jerk. Just amazing. But as soon as we start to forget, as soon as we start to go to sleep and forget our own contradictions, As soon as we stop bearing the burden of ourselves, 
then the burden of others' unpleasant manifestations and failings becomes horrible. It's a huge burden. Work on oneself means this inner heat or pain is set up, which eventually transforms us. The reason that it's called conscious suffering is because you have to walk into it with your eyes wide open. You have to step into the heat on purpose. As long as you're justifying yourself, as long as we're seeing faults in others only and being protected by buffers, as long as that continues, we're not going to see our own contradictions. This heat or friction isn't set up. Stop avoiding it. I'm not saying that to you as advice. I'm saying if you wish to develop, if you wish to develop, stop avoiding the heat. Stop avoiding the friction. Stop avoiding your contradictions. Stop using self-justifying. Stop allowing the action of buffers to instantly put you to sleep. Stop it. To sum up what Paul says here, verse 1, in finding fault, observe yourself also. Always a good idea. Verse 2, understand that you must bear the burden of other people's unpleasant manifestations. That's the way that is. Verse 4, you must truly test the qualities of the work on yourself. Verse 5, you must bear the burden of yourself. Don't justify or buffer things off, but bear it without becoming negative or pitiful. All this will give you the needed heat to melt something in you. And that's what this work aims at. It aims at melting something in you, fusing something in you, so that you can become more real. You are the best and better.